Hello and welcome to Talking Tourism, the podcast series especially for tourism operators and industry professionals. I'm Tom Wooten and I'll be your host for today's episode. Talking Tourism is an initiative of the Tourism Industry Council Tasmania, or the TICT, the peak industry body for the tourism industry in this beautiful state of Tasmania. If you are a regular listener to Talking Tourism, welcome back. If you're a first-time listener and enjoy today's episode, remember, there are now more than 100 episodes of Talking Tourism Conversations available from wherever you access your podcasts, or you can simply stream them on the TICT website at tict.com.au. We are recording this podcast today on the lands of the Palawa and Pakana, and TICT offers its respect to the Tasmanian Aboriginal people, their elders, past and present, for their enduring care and management of these islands. Today's episode is brought to you by our partner, Knight Frank. Knight Frank knows property. With a proven track record established over 125 years, Knight Frank has the distinct advantage of taking a longer-term approach and investing in their client relationships versus being driven by the bottom line. Thanks to Knight Frank for their generous support of TICT and for helping to make this episode of Talking Tourism possible. Now... Let's get into today's conversation with Emily Briffer, CEO and co-founder at Hamlet, which is a catering and hospitality business in South Hobart. Arriving in Hobart in 2016, Emily was confronted by the scale of entrenched unemployment in the Tasmanian community. Leaving her own career as a chef, Emily established Hamlet, a thriving not-for-profit social enterprise that provides practical work experience and hands-on training placements to people who face employment barriers such as limited English, long-term unemployment, or the presence of a mental or physical disability. Emily, welcome to Talking Tourism. Thank you. <laughs> so I have had the privilege of, uh, of a meal in, uh, in Hamlet. Uh, it, wasn't, uh, it was a few years ago now, uh, but a beautiful setting and a beautiful little uh, nook of Hobart too, might I add. You established Hamlet about six and a half years ago. What was that process and uh, how has Hamlet evolved since then? Yeah, so, um, well, I moved to Tassie back in, what was it, 2000 and... Something. Something, <laughs> a long time ago. And originally I was working as a chef at um, Franklin Restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, I was one of the chefs that was there when that opened. I guess I fell in love with Tassie when I moved down here. I had no... Um, idea that I was going to stay here long term. It was sort of like come down and do a few months um, in a busy restaurant and then go back to Melbourne, but fell in love with Tassie and, yeah, I just sort of saw an opportunity for, I guess, two things. Back then I really felt like there was an opportunity for another cafe in Hobart. Um, You know, there's quite a few years ago now, so there wasn't a lot going on in that scene, I didn't feel. And coming from Melbourne where there's cafes everywhere, I sort of felt like... um, there was an opportunity for that and I really felt like there was an opportunity to um, set up sim- something similar to where I'd been working in Melbourne, which was Kinfolk Cafe. And I'm right in saying that was with your brother? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So my brother started that back in 2010, I think it was. Mm. Yeah, that was really successful and I guess I just sort of felt like there was an opportunity to do something to help people who were facing barriers to employment. And the idea at the start was really to provide people with some basic job-ready skills um, and help them sort of build some confidence in the industry. And then it's grown a lot from there. 
Um, but yeah, I guess in terms of the establishment of the cafe itself, um, myself and my then um, business partner, Millie, we sort of invested a fair bit of our own cash to get it off the ground. Um, I think because we both really believed in what we were doing. So for our listeners, the simple nutshell version here of Hamlet and what it's about, you, you have disadvantaged people coming to work for you. Um, how do you find them? How do they find you? How are they paid? What's, what's, the, what's the structure look like? So the structure is we provide a work experience and training program yep. to people who are facing barriers to employment. So and is that a distinct period of time? Like is a program? Yeah, yep. the program runs for 10 weeks. Yep. Um, and it's a volunteer, voluntary work experience yep. opportunity for people who I guess want to get some skills to help them improve their chances of finding employment. And I think, you know, that in itself says a lot about the people who are coming to do the training program. You know, they're so keen to, to get a job that they're willing to give up their time for 10 weeks so that they can really improve their chances of Absolutely. getting that job. And yep. I suppose, you know, if you think about it at a very base level, if you've never been employed or you're struggling to find a job, every time you apply for a job, people want to see that you have a reference. They want someone who can vouch for you and say that, yep, you show up on time and you know the basics. Um, and that can be really hard to get when you've never been employed and nobody will give you a go. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's where I felt Hamlet could sit. You know, we could sort of be that person in people's corner saying, yeah, we'll give you a reference and we'll give you some of the basic skills you need to get a job yep. so that it's not so daunting when you walk in the door on the first day of work. Sure. And how, how do you connect with those people? How do they find you? Yeah, so um, when we first started six and a half years ago, we were working with a couple of different um, existing service organisations. Mm -hmm. So places like WorkSkills and the Migrant Resource Centre who were encouraging their clients to get involved with Hamlet. And very quickly, you know, within two months, it was just, we got a fair bit of media when we opened and we just had people sort of knocking on the door saying, you know, I want to be involved too. Um, and so, you know, we set up an application form on our website and that's where majority of our participants come from now. It's just right. word of mouth. Is it really? So yeah, okay. a lot of them will still be involved with, you know, a job active provider or a DARES um, who might encourage them to do the Hamlet pro program because I guess we've got a proven model of success now. Um, but majority of them, you know, when you ask, it's like, oh, my sister thought it would be a good idea for me or my nan or my mate did this and yep. it really helped. So that's what we're seeing more and more. It's more a word of mouth thing. Yep. There must have been some sort of perceived risks around this as well. Obviously, you're entering the service industry and you are premising your uh, business on um, uh, a staff force that is inexperienced in delivering service. Um, of course, there is a whole other completely uh, positive and opportune uh, slant there. But what, what was the risks? How did you how did you tackle those? You know, back in the very very beginning, the risk was that there wasn't a lot of social enterprises down in Tassie. Um, and I think, you know, whenever there's something new, there's a bit of fear around it. You know, I remember having conversations with people at the start, even, you know, people who were helping us do the build of Hamlet, who, when I told them the concept, they just looked me in the face and laughed really? and sort of say, yeah. you know, that's never going to work. Yep. Like, why don't you just set up a cafe and make some money mm. and then do something with that? And that was never the point to me. The point was, I think, you know, one of the the issues with unemployment in, in Tasmania is that it might get talked about a lot, but you don't actually see what the issue is. And it's very easy to sort of brush off to think. And I think a lot of people do have that concept of uh, if people aren't working, it's probably because they don't want to. And I guess what we're trying to prove is that 
that's not what's going on. There are a lot of factors that contribute to someone's inability to find work. And often it's actually about the perception of whether or not they're able to do the job. And I think, you know, in terms of the very beginning, we were super lucky that in terms of the staff, like we've got a core staff now of 10, including, you know, Cam Perry, who's been working in the kitchen since we opened the doors. So he's been with us for six and a half years now, which is pretty unheard of in terms of the hospitality and tourism industry to have someone stay with you for that long. long, And I guess, you know, having that core staff who really understand what we're trying to do and really want to see it succeed has been a huge benefit. In terms of, you know, some of the risks in the very beginning, I guess there was always a cash flow issue. You know, the first couple of years were pretty scary. You know, we'd sort of invested a bit of our own cash and to get it off the ground and and then I guess you know we were sort of working frantically probably not uh, doing the right thing by ourselves in yeah. terms of just working non-stop because we really wanted to see it succeed so cash flow for the those first couple of years was pretty daunting as I imagine most you know That's small it. businesses yep. in this industry are and you know, finding those staff over the years, as everybody is talking about at the moment in terms of the skill shortages that are going on, I guess Hamlet has the added factor of you want to find people who are really experienced in the industry so they can pass on their skills to the participants who they're training. But you also need people who are who are patient and who understand that people learn in very different ways. So you, there's sort of this added factor to it as well. You're looking for quite a unique skill set. Yeah, yeah. So that's always, I guess, been one of those risks when we are employing new staff that you really want to make sure that you go in with them understanding exactly what you're trying to do. Of course. Yeah. It's it's such an ambitious project and obviously you're tackling some fairly significant endemic issues. How do you go about setting and then achieving aspirational but realistic goals? And And if I may... I've, uh, in looking at your website, I'd just like to uh, share some of the stats <laughs> that I discovered here. 35,000 hours of work experience, 550 participants through your programs, 96% attendance rate, which is extraordinary, and 60% of graduates have continued on to paid work. So though whether they were goals you set out to, whether you're surprised by those, I don't know, but how do you make sure that with such a, a with lofty aspirations here that you are achieving the goals you're setting out to? Yeah, so I guess Hamlet also benefits from the fact because we're a charity, we obviously have a board of directors. Board that we have have skills that, you know, benefit Hamlet enormously and, you know, it's a voluntary board. So um, they're all giving up their time to to help us succeed. And I guess we do a lot at the board level in terms of sort of strategic planning and making sure that the goals we're setting for the next six months, 12 months, three years are realistic, but also going to help us achieve our sort of mission. Mm -hmm. And then I, I guess the other thing that we do, you know, that's a lot of work that I do with the board, but we also do a lot of work as a team in terms of the staff of we meet weekly and we discuss, you know, how things are going and we do set pretty ambitious goals of <laughs> yeah. what we want to achieve and we have a lot of discussions in terms of the participants and if we see that there's other ways that we can be assisting them and, you know, this might go beyond the work experience sort of realm. We have a lot of participants who might struggle with literacy and numeracy and our work experience coordinator will do a lot to um, connect them with other services which might be able to help them 
in their overall life and those these things are things that will end up helping them in terms of their training at Hamlet because yep. it, it's all things that will benefit them in terms of going on to find a job. One thing I'm particularly intrigued about with this, and I don't really even know quite how to frame this question, but you, you have started out here as a social enterprise. Um, that's the kind of the core of your business. You might even say that you're a social enterprise first, kind of hospitality uh, business second. You're here today, the Tourism Industry Conference, talking about positive impact tourism and how perhaps existing tourism businesses can apply or, or create a positive impact with, with what they do. Do you think there is challenges in retrospectively adding a positive impact for some of these businesses that don't necessarily currently do it versus the way you've done it, which is, again, at your core, you are a social enterprise. So you started out thinking about positive impact for businesses that are now thinking, how can we do good? Uh, what do you think are the challenges they might well, face? I think it's an interesting question in the sense that I think most people who go into business want to do something good. I don't think there's many people who literally just go into this industry, like tourism and hospitality, because they want to make a whole heap of cash because it's unrealistic to think that that's going to happen quickly. Yep. I think one of the things in terms of creating a positive impact and, you know, what I'll be talking about later today is this industry is struggling at the moment. COVID-19 has had huge impacts in terms of what it's done for the industry and I guess employment in the industry. You know, we've got huge skill shortages and they get talked about a lot at the moment, the skill shortages for the tourism and hospitality industry. But it's funny because I was thinking about this when I got asked to speak and it's actually the same conversation that's been having been being had the entire time I've lived in Tassie. I've heard about skill shortages in the yeah. tourism and hospitality industry. And I think it's really easy to think about it and go, oh, you know, it's because of COVID now and, you know, that's why we're struggling and that's why we can't find people to fill the gaps. But I think the bigger conversation is probably about who are we looking for? I think we're so, it's so easy in this industry to write job descriptions, but you already have a perception of who who that person should be, like what they should look like, what they should sound like. Often it's actually, you know, when employers are writing job descriptions, it's almost it's like, if I could clone myself, mm. that would be ideal. And I think probably what we need to start thinking about is who are the other job seekers? Because there are a lot of job seekers in Tasmania who might be able to actually move into this industry. You know, the thing about the tourism and hospitality industries is relatively low barriers to entry for a lot of those sort of, I guess, jobs that need to be filled at the moment. So how can we as organisations and teams help support these job seekers and make our workplaces really inclusive? I think that's something that I've seen a lot in terms of, you know, 60% of the people that we work with at Hamlet have disabilities. Yep. And that, that's a group that's incredibly underrepresented underrepresented in the tourism and hospitality industry. I think there's a lot that this industry can do to become more inclusive in terms of finding ways to improve access for these people to move into the industry. And I think that's something that we need to start thinking about. I think we really need to stop sort of thinking about skill shortages and just thinking like, oh, I need another of those five people that I already have. Like I need to clone them essentially and I need everybody who comes to work here to have all the skills possible to work in, you know, in this venue. Well, it um, comes back to that first question I asked, that idea that you're going into a skills, into a service industry, sorry. Yeah. Um, and you're you're attracting people who aren't necessarily credentialed in, in service delivery. Even the framing of that question kind of misses the point, doesn't it? It's like, well, yeah, they'll never get there if they don't have this opportunity. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, the thing about this industry is that we can actually create spaces where people can build skills quite rapidly. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of jobs in terms of the tourism and hospitality industry that people who are underskilled could easily walk into and then build their skills as they journey through, you know, their employment with an organisation. Yep, yep, fantastic. Yeah. So, M for listeners that are, are impressed by what you've done and like the idea of themselves engaging with uh, or broadening their mind to possibilities with recruitment, how might they go about that? How, how can they connect with, with uh, a broader spectrum of workers? What are the steps they might take? Well, I guess the first step in terms of if you're operating in the sort of Hobart region is get in contact with Hamlet. We've got a lot of participants who are looking to get involved in the industry and I suppose the benefit of taking on a Hamlet participant is that they will already have some of those basic job-ready skills and have an understanding of working in the hospitality industry. A lot of the hospitality sort of skills that we're teaching them are transferable across the tourism industry as well. I guess the second thing that you as an operator can do is just start to review the way that you're writing job descriptions. So in terms of if you are writing job descriptions for you know, maybe a, a quite sort of a lower entry position, actually think about, you know, is it important that this person has their RSA straight away or is that something we as a business can support them to go through that process? Are there other things that you're writing, you know, are you saying that people need to have qualifications to start working in in your sort of field? Start to think about actually what is it that you really need because often like my argument would be that those qualifications don't mean much when you're actually on the ground working in this industry. A lot of the stuff people might learn in a classroom might be completely irrelevant to your business and your operations. So start to think about the way you're writing job descriptions and see if there are things that you can pull away or take out of those sort of job descriptions so that you can open yourself up to a wider pool of job seekers. Remove the barriers for yeah. them. Yeah. Because you hear so many people talking about hiring for attitude. Yeah. Uh, it maybe becomes a bit of a throwaway line, but it's absolutely worth focusing on uh, people understanding that, as you say, attitude is probably vastly more important than any of those credentials they might have had. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's a really important thing to think about is that often the people who are essentially overlooked because maybe they don't have a set of skills that you've written in a job description, they might end up being the employees that will be, you know, be with you the longest because they're just desperate for someone to give them a go. And, you know, I think that's what we've seen at Hamlet is that a lot of the people who we're working with, the job seekers who are otherwise facing, you know, significant barriers to entry, they're the ones who are showing up every week without fail, who are keen to, you know, when we're doing a function at Hamlet, they're keen to get involved because they just want to keep learning. And I think that's an important thing to think about when you're sort of going through this sort of stages of employing new people is actually think about what is it that you're really looking for and actually do you have a team of staff Mm. who are very capable of training someone of a lower grade because you probably do they might just not have done it before. Sure. And because you have given these people an opportunity, you're now seeing higher retention of staff for mm-hmm. longer. Uh, yeah. That's just a win-win for, for your business but for them as well. Yeah. Yeah, great. Now we talk increasingly about the importance of social licence within a business. Do you think this is going to plateau or drop off or will it continue to grow in importance? And what are the simple things perhaps that Tasmanian tourism operators can do to authentically grow 
their own social license. So we've just sort of touched on this a little bit, the idea around uh, positive impact tourism, the market perceivably um, very interested in engaging with businesses that are doing good things. What are the opportunities for Tasmanians to do that and will it remain important? Yeah, I think it's a, there's a lot of opportunities for Tassie. I think it's, um, you know, I actually listened to Kim Good speak yesterday and she sp- spoke a lot about, I guess, understanding where you are working or where you're setting up businesses. And I think there's a lot in that. I think often, you know, we might sort of open venues in places but not have a very good understanding of what is going on for the people who live in that place and are the services you're setting up actually accessible to the people who live in that area. I think there's a lot that we can do in terms of really understanding the geographical location in which we're setting up businesses. And I don't mean just in terms of the landscape. I think also in terms of the issues that people who live in that area might be facing. You know, are there low literacy levels in the area that you're setting up a business? Is there something that you as a business could do to help the people who you're employing who might face these sort of issues? Like I think there's a lot that we can do in terms of better understanding Tasmania as a whole but also where we're actually working. I work in the uh, west and northwest of Tasmania and certainly that uh, really hits home uh, up there and some of these conversations uh, pleasingly are taking place about understanding, as you say, that socioeconomic or sociocultural environment in which you're operating and the visitor market you're trying to attract versus the locals and and how what's the rub there um, and how can they work cohesively together. Yeah, and I think that's a big thing. I think, um, you know, obviously with the tourism industry, you know, you're trying to attract tourists, Mm -hmm. but I think there's also um, a lot to say about also attracting the people who live in that area and providing them with things that they can do on their their weekends and on their holidays because they have potential to also be big sort of supporters of the the venues or the things that you're setting up as a tourist business. So it's really important to think about that as well as, you know, the mainlanders that might be coming down for a weekend. Sure. Now, you've clearly learned a lot on this journey and you did touch on uh, the learning around not flogging yourself uh, the way you perhaps did (laughs) early on. Are there any other key learnings you can share with tourism operators who might be looking to get into a similar sort of social enterprise or uh, really purely focused on giving back within their business? Uh, I think have conversations with, you know, people who live in the area and have conversations with other people who have set up things in your local area. I think that's something that, you know, I wish I probably had have done a little bit more in terms of setting up Hamlet. I I felt like I had a real understanding of Hobart, but I hadn't been here for that long. And there was probably a lot more I could have done in terms of talking to other operators in that sort of cafe scene to understand better what worked for them and what didn't. And, you know, that can be a tough conversation because obviously people don't want to necessarily support the new kid who's going to steal their (laughs) customers. But I think one thing that's quite beautiful about Tassie is that people generally want to support other people. They want to see you succeed. Yep. I think, you know, like you sort of mentioned, that thing of not um, being unrealistic about how much you can do. I definitely was very unrealistic about that at the start. You know, I was, we were open seven days a week when we first started and I was working in the kitchen seven days a week and then trying to do the the back end of running a charity in my afternoons and nights, which didn't last that long. You know, I think it was six months before I said this just cannot go on. And I think getting those 
people around you, you know, you might not necessarily have a board, but, you know, whether it's finding mentors who are really able to support you and support the work you're doing, I've benefited greatly from that in the last few years, including people like Kim Goods who, you know, she's been a huge supporter of Hamlet and has really helped me get a better understanding of things that, you know, maybe I hadn't thought about previously. Um, Having the board that we do and being able to have discussions, like our chair, Matt Rowe probably gets a bit sick of the phone calls that I make to him when I've got ideas or feel like I need to discuss something before I make a decision on things. But it's really important to have those people that you can, I guess, make a call to, even if it seems to you like a silly thing to ask someone, it's, it's important to have someone to have the chat with. I reckon that's a great answer and I think it actually is the thing that most characterises Tasmania from my point of view is the idea that we are a small enough uh, island that that cohesiveness and cooperation and you mentioned, you know, people might see you as a threat coming in to steal their business but it's a bigger pie, bigger piece for everyone, hey? Like it's – and and I think everyone sort of in a roundabout way understands that and I reckon it really – underlines uh, what Tasmania is about. And if you thought that uh, your journey has uh, involved a lot of hard work, you're now a young mum, that must be a whole new (laughs) frontier of hard work for you Yeah, I just keep adding on, don't I? (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's it's a whole new thing but, you know, the best thing I've ever done. Yeah, fantastic. Um, She's amazing. She's, yeah. And this means you're you, you anchored in Tasmania. We're keeping you for now. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, my partner and I are actually just going through renovations. We didn't have enough going on, so we decided to renovate our house at the same time. So just double down. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I love Tassie. I can't imagine myself leaving. It's actually funny. My partner and I, when we first got together, we had a, a brief chat about maybe moving back to Melbourne. Yeah. He's Tassie born, yeah. but lived in Melbourne for about five years. We'd sort of been having that chat and I, you know, mentioned it to a couple of girlfriends in Melbourne who all got very overexcited about the concept of me moving back. And then we went to Melbourne for a weekend and I think it took us from the airport in the Uber, from the airport to Melbourne CBD for us both to look at each other and say, nah, I can't do it. We're just, yeah, we live in West Hobart. We're close to Knocklofty. It's just Tassie has all the things that you could want, I think, in life. Which is a great segue because we're now going to uh, go through the Talking Tourism Big Seven, understand, just dig a little bit deeper on Emily Briffer and uh, what draws you to Tasmania. What, what, how do you see Tasmania? So uh, what I'm seeking here are short, sharp answers. Question one, favourite spot in Tasmania and why? Knocklofty, I think. It's close to our house and it's, you know, just a beautiful walk. It's sort of that thing of like being able to walk five minutes from our house and feel like you're in the bush is pretty special. And second to that would probably be Bishano. My partner's parents have a place in Bishano and we love going there. Two beautiful spots. Favourite travel destination anywhere in the world? Oh, that's a tough one. At the moment probably actually is Bishano, I'd have to say. Like, Great. Yeah, we Keep love, me in Tassie. Yeah, we love going down there. We really have got you here for good, I think. Someone coming to Tasmania for the very first time in their lives asks you, what's the one thing they absolutely must experience while they're here? What do you tell them? Well, coming to eat at Hamlet would probably be <laughs> first. No. Obviously. No. Um, I think the food scene's pretty incredible in Tassie, so there's definitely that. Um, I think Mona is one of those experiences you just have to have. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, Mona would probably be my, my go-to, I think, because I think it's got you know, all the shock value, but also it's such a beautiful spot. 
Brecky at Hamlet, off to Mona, then back to Hamlet. For yeah, a, yeah, yeah. Sure, okay. You're walking the overland track for five days with three other people. Anyone in the world, famous, not so famous, living or past. Who and why? Ooh, I'd probably say my partner and my baby. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't want to do anything like that. I just <laughs> don't like being away from her at the moment, to be honest. Even sitting here, I'm like... Oh, where is she? Um, so just take her on a five-day trek through the wilderness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> I mean, the sleeping situation would be a bit weird. Um, and then I'd probably say my brothers, um, I know that's an extra one, but, yeah, I'd love to do something like that with my brothers. We've You've just done... earned some serious family brownie points oh, there. Yeah. That's a great answer. <laughs> <laughs> You're road tripping around Tasmania. What are you listening to in the car? Paul Kelly. Good answer. Always. <laughs> And when you arrive at your destination, what is your tipple of choice? Wine that my partner has got from some friend of his who's a natural winemaker. Great. He does a lot of that. So yep. there would be something, but I can't think of a name off the top of my head a right boot, now. A, a bootlegged garage Tazzy wine. <laughs> natural oh, wine. <laughs> yeah, maybe. It would probably be something from overseas to be honest. Yeah, but okay. we'll see. I don't know. <laughs> Great, okay. I thought I thought it might have been as a young mum, maybe just coffee. Just anything. Oh caffeine. yeah. There's a lot of that going on. But no, I think if we were going on a road trip we'd probably have some good wines in the back. Great. And then question number seven. I mean you think that was a tough question. Uh, the big question, the big debate, curried Tasmanian scallops a culinary delight or a culinary crime? I think they're a crime. I've never actually eaten them, to they're be honest. They're not on the menu at Hamlet? No. <laughs> <laughs> never to no, be. The, even the idea of that to me is not fun. I'm like a, Tassie might come after me for that, but, yeah, no, curried scallops are not my thing. <laughs> and thanks so much. Great chat. Uh, good luck for the future of Hamlet uh, and for any other uh, enterprises you might embark upon. Uh, congratulations and thank you on behalf of Tasmanians for what you've done there as well. Uh, you really should hold your head high. It's fantastic. Good luck for later today and, and yes. sharing your story uh, with those attending the TICT conference. And, uh, yeah. We'll hope to see you around Tassie for many years to come. Thanks so much. And thank you all for listening to today's episode of Talking Tourism. Remember to subscribe to hear more episodes as we release them every two weeks or so. Also remember to tell a friend or tourism colleague to check out our podcasts. Talking Tourism is an initiative of Tourism Industry Council Tasmania and today's episode was brought to you with support of our partner, Knight Frank. A big thanks also to Caleb Miller at Mac40, our audio specialist who produces these episodes. I'm your host, Tom Wooten, and we'll catch up next time.